Hi, welcome to Screening Room with Chet and Dee. I'm Chet. And I'm Dee. I'm a boomer. And I'm a millennial. And we both love classic movies. We do. And we think you're going to love them too if you give them a shot, which is where we come in. We're here to talk about those old movies. We tell you why we think they're so good and give you a little background about how they're made. And we'll also talk about what those old movies can teach us about people and about the past. We're releasing this episode on President's Day, and we couldn't think of a better President's movie than All All the the President's President's Men. Men. A 1976 thriller directed by Alan Pakula and starring Dustin Hoffman and Robert Redford, who produced the movie along with Pakula. Okay, we're going to jump right into the synopsis, and as always... Synopses are never plagiarized on Screening Room with Chet and Dee. We write them ourselves and read them in dramatic voices. 1972. When burglars break into Democratic National Headquarters at the Watergate office building and are found to have some connection to people working in the Nixon White House, Washington Post reporters Bob Woodward, played by Robert Redford, and Carl Bernstein, played by Dustin Hoffman, are assigned the story. Through painstaking research, the two discover that the Committee to Re-Elect the President, or CREEP, used campaign funds to pay the burglars. Woodward's deep background source, nicknamed Deep Throat, tells them to follow the money and suggests that some high-ranking people were in on the action. The reporters eventually get a list of creep employees, but no one is willing to talk to them. They learn about campaign sabotage happening across the country, but can't find evidence that the men running creep and or serving in the Nixon administration were directly involved. Other media outlets and even their own editors begin to doubt that the story has much news value when their leads dry up. Both the FBI and Congress are also investigating, but they fail to uncover anything beyond the men directly involved in the Watergate break-in. Managing editor Ben Bradley, paid by... Joseph Robards, in an Oscar-winning role, warns them they're risking the reputation of the newspaper and that they'd better find some hard information soon. Finally, a campaign donor reveals to Woodward that some of the top administrators at Creep seem to be running a slush fund with millions of dollars. And in an exhausting interview, Bernstein coaxes a Creep bookkeeper into revealing that John Mitchell was using the money to fund illegal activities while Mitchell was still serving as Attorney General. They later get unconfirmed reports that H.R. Haldeman, Nixon's chief of staff, was involved in the conspiracy and has been pressuring the FBI to curtail its investigation. Woodward and Bernstein think they've gotten their big break when they learn that creep treasurer Hugh Sloan had objected to the illegal activity and threatened to quit. Sloan has just testified before a grand jury about the scandal and is prevented by law from discussing his testimony. Woodward and Bernstein get Sloan to confirm Mitchell and Haldeman's involvement, but they make the mistake of reporting that Sloan testified about this to the grand jury. When the Post story comes out, both Sloan and the White House deny its accounts, shattering the fragile credibility of the entire investigation. Woodward goes back to Deep Throat and demands more specific information. Deep Throat reveals that the essence of their reporting was accurate and that their lives may even be in danger. Woodward shares this with Bernstein. With music blasting to drown out any surveillance, they type out messages to each other. Bernstein reveals that Sloan has told him that prosecutors avoided asking him about Mitchell and Halderman before the grand jury. The reporters go back to Bradley, getting him out of bed in the wee hours of the morning and spill their information. Bradley tells him to 
Get back to work, Addy. Nothing's riding on this except the First Amendment, freedom of the press, and maybe the future of this country. The movie closes by showing the reporters hard at work in the newsroom and then lets us read the teletype headlines of the stories that would come out over the next year, ending with Nixon's resignation. Wow. Yeah. A thriller. Is it's this, a thriller. Is this a true story? It is a true story. Get out of town. It is... It is as true a story as you can get. You know, there, there are a lot of movies that you watch that will say based on a true story or some of the accounts. No, no, no. This is like all true. And they are just obsessively committed to accuracy and realism when they do this movie. Everything. Down to the last detail. Including, so Dustin Hoffman... You said, what kind of a method actor is he? Oh, uh, well, he's... He is a method actor? He is a method actor. I mean, What is method acting? Oh, method acting was a term that was coined in the in the 50s. It was actually, I think it was called the Stanislavski method after the guy who came up with it. It's, it's really just a style of acting that's extremely naturalistic, and you, you really try to live the character. You don't start with the lines. You start with the person, the essence of the person. You try to become that. And that's what Dustin Hoffman did. That's what Dustin Hoffman always does. So and he has the like replica of Bernstein's wallet. Yes. Everything that's the contents yes. of everything that's in Bernstein's wallet in real life. And yeah. He has it in his pocket even though there's you never <laughs> yeah, see you never even see the it. wallet. Yeah. Red, Redford and and Hoffman both go to the Washington Post and they spend several weeks just observing. They're kind of fly on the wall. They watch everything the reporters do, how they do it. They're talking to him constantly. And of course, that's enough for Redford. But Hoffman actually goes to Bernstein and it's like, I want to see what's in your wallet. And he gets himself his own little wallet that's exactly like Bernstein's, even though you never even see it in the movie. I mean, that's just, that's Dustin Hoffman. But it's not just that. There's other stuff, too, that you found out that they did to to make this as realistic as possible. So they, would you guess that they shot this in the Washington Post? You would certainly guess it that, wouldn't like you? It looks like that. It I does. thought it was in a newspaper, and then I, after we watched it, I'm thinking, well, how would the newspaper be able to make a newspaper while a movie is being shot? Yeah, because... You they can't just close it down for a week or... Even Several a weeks, day. yeah, because it, they shoot more in there than anywhere else. And what we found out, they were they wanted this newsroom to look so accurate. They actually got the architectural plans for the building, and they created a full scale reproduction of that. In fact, this this wins the Oscar for set design. So it, it is to scale everything in exactly the same place, including where uh, uh, Woodstein, uh, Woodward and Bernstein's desks are, where Ben Brown, Bradley's office is, what's glass, what's not, all that stuff. They shipped in trash from the Washington Post to California? They, yeah. They, they the wanted, trash from the reporters. They, they wanted shipped- realistic garbage. And they made replicas of outdated phone books from the time period. Phone books, magazines, pictures, everything. So they, they took pictures of every reporter's desk in the place and basically reproduced it with all the junk on the desks, everything. And they have the fluorescent lights. 
Yes, the fluorescent lights. And you even learned that that's, uh, you don't usually shoot movies under fluorescent lights, right? Right. Because it's got like a green yeah, color and uh, ugly. it's just not flattering as <clears throat> the man who shall not be named says. <laughs> right. It's, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's terrible. But they wanted the fluorescent lights because they wanted it to look exactly like the office. So they had to, in the developing of the film, they had to kind of color correct to get it to look nicer than it would have looked um, just coming straight out of the camera. So, before we get into more details, why do you think this movie is important? Why did you choose this movie for President's Day? Well, we could have gone with other things. Like, first of all, we don't do new movies. We could have done Lincoln. Fantastic movie. There are other movies about there's young Mr. Lincoln. And there, there are plenty of others. But, first of all, it's got presidents in the title. And it's... We just went through, in this country, an impeachment process... And everybody was talking at the time about the comparisons between 2000 and 1974, actually. But this movie starts in 1972. So it's just really relevant. And I think it's worth uh, going back to to talk about how things are the same, yet in other cases different from back then. And it's just a fantastic movie, too. Nominated for several Academy Awards. great screenplay. It was uh, the book that Woodward and Bernstein wrote was a bestseller, won its own awards, and this movie is, um, again, very faithful to that book, as faithful as you can get. Did you read the book? I did, uh, a long time ago. um, And actually, the... um, the book, we'll talk about that in just a little bit, about the transition from the book to the movie. The book is, well, first of all, when you watch the movie, you are going to be somewhat overwhelmed. There are lots and lots of characters and lots and lots of details, and there are going to be some things that you don't keep straight, and actually, it doesn't even matter. You don't have to keep everything straight. But they did reduce it somewhat. If you read the book, there are even more names and more specific events that happen and twists and turns and all that kind of stuff. It's just overwhelming. In fact, when I read the book, I had to take notes. I was reading it just for the fun of it, but I had to write down all the names just so I could keep track of who these people were as I was going through it. Well, and so as a segue to trying to keep certain things in focus, we can talk about the cinematography really quickly and a trick or a, a unique... I haven't heard of this before. It's called a split diopter. Yes. That um, Gordon, what's his name, Wills? Yes, Gordon Wills. Gordon Willis. Willis. He uses split diopter, so you have where... Yeah. You want to describe, Blake? It's a trick, and neither of us are experts on this, but we found it fascinating when we watched the movie and read about it, because this was a technique, and it was kind of developed in the 1970s, and they did it a lot in the 70s and 80s where basically you put an external lens in front of the regular lens, or like half of a lens. So what you've got is the camera lens has now got two focal points going on at the same time, and this allows you to have this really unnatural ability to focus on both what's in the foreground and at the same time what's on in the background, at least 
like in in the one of the most famous shots in this film, we've got Robert Redford foregrounded on the right-hand side, and in the background, oh, at least 20, 30 feet behind him in this huge newsroom, there's this cluster of reporters. And that left side of the screen is also in focus on those people way back in the background. And it just gives you this sense of how huge this place is, and it also reinforces how busy, how much commotion there is, how loud it is while he's trying to talk on the phone. Right, and, when and he's covering up his ear, you're kind of also like, shush, people in the background. Like, you, yeah. You have the same feeling he has. Yeah, and it's just, and again, you, they had such loving devotion to the recreation of this set of the newsroom they wanted to show it off, too. I mean, what is the point of putting, you know, a 1972 copy of Newsweek on somebody's desk 20 feet in the background if there isn't a chance that maybe the camera is going to pick it up? So it's um, just magnificently shot. And like I said, the, the, the set is fantastic. And it's all part of this. There, there's nothing in this movie down to most of the dialogue most of the dialogue comes straight from Woodward and Bernstein's book, and certainly all the facts uh, that are re- shown in the in the movie are from real life. This is this is pretty much the way it happened. With a few, we'll talk about that again when we talk about how they made this more dramatic. Um, well, I think one of the, the the techniques I talked before about how it's kind of hard to keep track of everything that's going on. Lots and lots of characters. Yeah, if you were doing a fictional story, there's no way you would include this many characters. And there are so many of these these guys, especially the people who are working for Nixon, we never even see their faces. We're talking about uh, Mitchell and Magruder and Hunt and Liddy and uh, Colson, and we never even see their faces. There are only one or two of these guys that we even hear their voices on the phone. So they keep talking about these people. We don't even see them. You can't put a name with a face because there is no face. The camera angles that they choose in this movie are really, really difficult. Like one of my, I don't know if it's one of my favorite shots or or it's just a shot that really exemplifies it. Early in the movie, when Woodward first goes to the courthouse, when they're arraigning the Watergate burglars. He walks into the back of the courtroom and all these people are standing around and the camera is way up in the foreground and Woodward is back kind of in the shadows and there are like six guys standing around him and he asks a question, you hear his voice and then somebody answers and you can't even tell which of these six guys is talking. And eventually, because I've seen the movie 20 times, I finally picked out which guy is talking, and they only show you, like, his forehead. But they do this throughout the movie. Right, so the scene that is kind of referenced where uh, Woodward is on the phone for six minutes, Robert Redford is in a scene for, like, six minutes. Yeah, the camera just keeps running. And running. there's, like, a, a woman in the de- at the desk behind him, and with the diopter, she's out of focus, even though she's right behind him. Yeah. And she's, like... Uh, Dahlberg's on the phone, so she has a line, and you can't even, her face isn't even in focus. Yeah, and like when they do, in the dark, when they've got him like in, they're driving around at night in the car, when they do nighttime in this movie, it's dark. And 
in most movies, when they do these dark scenes, they they do little spotlights everywhere. We want to be able to see their faces, of course. We wouldn't want them just to be completely obscure. No, not in this movie. When they're in the dark, they're in the dark. And there are lots of times you don't even know what's going on because, but... But that's kind of like how the country was. They didn't know they were, everybody was in the dark about what and, was happening, and they didn't know what was going on, including the reporters. It's like, where is this... And it's I a don't mis- know what I'm sitting on. It's a mystery. A it's a mystery, a thriller. They're in the dark. Okay, and see, part of it is, first of all, we, we need to recreate the whole idea of how hard it was for these guys to figure out what was going on. And secondly, part of what you're doing here is that you're forcing the audience to engage. When you don't just put everything right up in front and don't, for example, show who's talking or brightly uh, light the set so you can see everything. When you're watching this movie, you're having to work. And all of a sudden, you're like in there with the reporters trying to figure stuff out. And you're getting a little frustrated, but not so frustrated that you want to tune out. You're just feeling like, I I. I need to find out what's going on here, which is how they suck you in and get you to go along on this story. Um, in fact, really, the this is kind of a classic example of a real-life story. And, and real-life stories, even though, like, if you read this book, it's really, really interesting. But it really just kind of creeps along. And this begins with the break-in in early summer 1972, and the book goes right up till Nixon resigns in 1974. And it goes at this pretty even pace, and it takes weeks and months for the next development to come along and all this. And that's kind of the way real life is. It doesn't, even if it's interesting, it's not thrilling. And part of, actually, when, when Robert Redford, he was the well, one... Well, Hollywood was already researching, doing some, uh, like, research in the... Se- before Robert Redford bought the rights to the book, right? Well, yeah. And, I mean, and again, this is, this is coming out just a few years after Nixon has resigned. So, of course, everybody's still talking about it. Um, but, yeah, part of the, the, the challenge when Redford said he wanted to do a movie based on this book is people said, oh, that's another political movie that's so boring. Um, who's going to want to watch that? And Robert Redford says, no, this isn't a movie about politics. It's a detective story. And really, when you watch this this movie, there's almost no talk about politics in it. We don't know what Nixon's policies are. We don't know what he was trying to do in the country. We don't know why people voted for him or didn't vote for him or any of that sort of thing. This is just the detective story. Uh, Redford said it was a how done it about a who done it because it really just emphasizes how these reporters went about their job. And when you have a, a real story like this, it's it can be a challenge to make it dramatic. And this I think is a great example of where you force a story into this classic dramatic structure. Something that's called, if you remember, in high school, maybe in a literature class or something like this, they talked about Freitag's pyramid. 
Ringing a bell for you? No. No, not ringing not, a bell for sorry. you. No. Actually, I didn't learn about it in high school either. <laughs> but some people Some people did. Okay. Thank goodness. And, yeah, Freitag's pyramid is they they call it this because it's it's shaped a little like a pyramid, okay? And and what they're basically visualizing I'm here. I'm only in, uh, familiar with inverted pyramids. Yes, because uh, you you must have taken a journalism class yeah, at some it was point brief, in time. Yeah. 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 Um, funny, I did too. Um, but Freitag's pyramid says you start with exposition. You start like on the ground in front of the pyramid. And then uh, you have this little point that's called the inciting incident. The inciting incident is where you learn that there's something interesting going on. And that starts you climbing up the side of the pyramid. And that section is called the rising action. And there's there's lots of little things that, that happen along the way, little Little challenges, little obstacles, little discoveries. So denials on the phone, learning about Howard Hunt. Yeah. So well, like in this case, the exposition is, well, the, you know, the, the break-in happens, and we find out that these guys work at the Washington Post. And the, yeah, the inciting incident is they think it's just this boring break-in story, but, oh, there's a connection to the White House? These burglars have Howard Hunt's? phone number. So that tells you, oh, there's more of a story here. So yeah. Um, and they have to, in order to make this all work, all these little scenes, every little new discovery has to be a little frustrating, but it has to give you this, this kind of kick at the end where, oh, we just learned something. Oh, this is even more exciting than we thought. And then it goes to the next question and there's a little obstacle there. And then so, yeah, we've got Bernstein, who's got to uh, fake the secretary out so he can get in to see the Miami prosecutor who was putting him off. And then that phone call that you talked about with Dahlberg. And then you get your big break when, they f- when Bernstein has that incredibly tense but scene. But first it has to plateau. Well, right, yeah. We've got a little plateau in there. There's a little, little gouge in the side of the, the pyramid where it seems like they're running out of steam and we're starting to get frustrated and, and we just wonder, yes, is this ever going to work? And then they get their big break. And then Bernstein gets that bookkeeper to talk. And what if it, we'll, we'll talk about that scene a little more uh, in a minute. But then, and then Sloan finally talks to them and then we're picking up momentum again. And then we even, we have to get the confirmation of Sloan. So we got to have that, uh, Bernstein's on the phone with the guy. Okay. If I count to 10 and uh, if I get to 10 and the story is okay, then you're still on the line. Then I'll know it's, it's all exciting. It's, it's, it's building the tension. And then the top of the pyramid in Freitag's pyramid is the crisis. And here the crisis is, oh, they made that huge mistake. They finally, all the reporting has been accurate up to this point. And finally, they write that one story that says Sloan told the grand jury about Mitchell. And it turns out, no, he didn't. The part about Mitchell was true. But Sloan didn't actually tell the grand jury, and now people are on TV calling them all liars and saying that all their reporting is biased, and it looks like it's all going to come crashing down. This is like you're almost at the top of the mountain, you think you're going to make it, and then all of a sudden you slip, and then you're hanging on by your fingernails, and it's like Has I this made it. Happened to you? Oh, several times. 
yeah, I've, I climb mountains all the time, and I almost fall In off. In Nebraska, yeah. Yeah. And, yeah, you got to grab that root of the tree, and you think you're going to fall, and you're going to go all the way back to the bottom. But, no, somehow you manage to pull yourself up. That's the climax, when you pull yourself up and you actually overcome the crisis. Now you're at the top of the pyramid. Um, and at this point, this is where Woodward goes back to deep throat, says, I'm tired of all your games. And he finally finds out more. Their lives are in danger. And then we've got that scene with, with him and, and Bernstein in the apartment. The backside of the pyramid, there's a little bit of falling action where you're solving the, these last problems. This is where Bradley gives him the pep talk. and you got to save democracy, man. That's right. And then the final step, the little like the, the, the ground level on the other side of the, the pyramid is called the denouement. Oh. Yeah, French word. Merci. Impress all of your friends. Learn this word, denouement. And that's where you just tie up all the loose ends, any, any little leftovers. And in this film, classic denouement, it's there in the newsroom, and we just read the teletypes. This guy pleads guilty, this guy gets convicted, this guy resigns, and then finally Nixon resigns. But how great to use the typewriter at the end and the beginning. Oh, yeah. But, yeah. And, oh, what did you, you learned about the, the opening credits when the, the keys from the typewriter are hitting the... the it's something about where they use, like, gunshots lined yeah. up with it. <laughs> and artillery at the end. And so yeah. it's something about, like, with... Words are weapons. The pen is more, or the typewriter is mightier than the sword. What is or that from? Grenade. What is that from? Um, that's from. Chat? <laughs> yeah, I made that one up myself. I'd never heard that before, and I just decided, I like it. yeah, you heard it here first. The pen is mightier than the sword. Yeah. So, I love this movie. I first saw this movie when I was in high school, and I accidentally got enrolled in a journalism class because I needed an elective. And like the first week of class, they roll in the big cart with the VCR and the TV, and the teacher starts showing this movie, and I am just hooked immediately. I am so excited about this, and if I had not already thought I had decided what I wanted to do with my life, it was just clear I would have been an, a reporter. This, there's nothing more exciting than this. Holding people accountable, you're holding up democracy. You can't have democracy if you don't have freedom of the press, if you don't have people who know what's going on. I was just so thrilled about this. And then... Years and years later, when I finally got back to journalism and teaching it, I started showing this movie to my students because it's just such a fantastic uh, illustration of how reporters work, or at least how they they should work. Well, before we get into that, so how did you worked in a newsroom for a time? I worked for a, a couple newspaper, years, right? Yeah. Did you ever have anything this exciting? Okay, not this exciting, but did you ever have anything that was exciting that kind of gave you a taste of exhilaration? Um, odd that you would ask this because the answer would be no. No. 
Uh, no, I was. A, I was. Were a, you disappointed? Did you think that this movie led you astray? Well, I kind of knew when I ended up becoming a sports writer instead of you know an investigative news reporter, and I was working on a small daily newspaper instead of the Washington Post. Now, not to say that there aren't really great stories being written by people at, at small newspapers, but they're typically not in the sports department. So, no. No, I am in no way um, similar in to these to, to these reporters. Okay, but you still learned some... Not that I couldn't have been. That's okay, right. that's a different thing. You could thing. have been a, yeah, a Woodstein oh. team. You oh, hell had yeah. A, you could have had a Woodstein. Yeah, word to your Bernstein. I could have been. I just, you know, I just doesn't didn't. Okay, didn't but you learn the same thing. So talk about the ethics of journalism and well, when I would practices that you sh- learned that sh- are similar to what they would have learned. When I would show this movie to my students, we would talk about um, some of the the ethics here. And and one of the, the first things that you tell somebody when they're taking a journalism class is that it, when you are a news reporter. Nobody cares who you are. You are invisible. It's, it's all people care about or should care about are the facts of the story. You don't put your personality in there. You don't write with your own little flair or style. You are just cramming fact after fact in there. And if you can't prove it, it doesn't go in the story. If you can't back it up with sources, it doesn't go in the story. If it's opinion, you've got to attribute it to somebody else. And this movie really shows that, too, because these reporters... They have no life. There's no life. Yeah. This, the work is their life. We learn nothing about these people outside they of care about. this story. Yeah. Yeah. And they are, yeah, they're, they're living in these, especially Woodward's got that cruddy apartment, newspapers and books all over the place. The TV is playing news all the time. He's already eating processed food. Yeah. He's, in the 70s. I thought you guys were supposed to be eating healthier then. Yeah. Well, this is when the junk food uh, revolution began. So yeah, he opens up his, his door in the morning and he's eating this crappy uh, cupcake or something in a plastic wrapper or whatever. But yeah. Yeah, but it's, it still honestly looks glamorous to me. Yeah. Well, and the because McDonald's. Yeah. Yeah. Because he's got some major purpose. Oh yeah. So it's, I would eat like that to, and have papers everywhere and books everywhere and yeah, listening to the news in the background and because you're part of it. If you're saving the world, <laughs> yeah. you don't have time for a personal life. So anyway, but that's but that's part of the ethics of of being a news reporter is nobody cares about your personality. It's just the story. Well, and you don't learn until later that Woodward's actually a Republican. Right. Yeah, and actually when it's he just re- kind of like nonchalant. Yeah, I am too. And then Bernstein's like, "Are you kidding? What?" I didn't yeah. know this. <laughs> I'm not even sure when Bernstein gives him that look. What? Do you, yeah. Is it like how could you be a Republican, or is it why did you feel it was appropriate to tell Hugh Sloan mm-hmm. that you're a Republican too? Uh, so yeah, that comes kind of out of the blue. But yeah, it, nothing but the facts. That's that's what you tell reporters over and over again. Um, yeah, I, other people use this in other contexts, but it was also in journalism class where my teacher wrote on the board, you don't assume because when you assume, you make an ass out of you and me. 
So that's why, even though they've got um, anonymous sources telling them things, you don't assume that an anonymous source is telling you the truth unless you get other sources that back up the same thing, which is why they have to get three different sources to kind of triangulate what's going on with, with Sloan there, because you don't just trust one person, especially if they don't put their name to it. Um, I also talk to students about what's the difference between being on the record and off the record, what's the difference between an anonymous source and a background source, and um, Deep Throat is called Deep Throat because he's on deep background, and that means if you're on background, nobody even quotes you anonymously. It's, as Deep Throat says to, to Woodward, it's like, I will try to keep you pointed in the right direction. And if you think you've learned something, you can ask me if this is consistent with what you found out. But I'm never going to be the first person to tell you something. And I'm certainly never going to be somebody that you're going to quote even anonymously. And then finally, you get into ethics debates. And again, the whole point of this, and as Bradley says at the end, the whole First Amendment is writing on this, and the whole point of the First Amendment is you cannot have a legitimate democracy unless you have freedom of the press, unless you have citizenry who know what's going on. And it's in the journalist's code of ethics that you are supposed to hold people in power accountable. And that means journalists tend to apply what we call utilitarian ethics, which is basically when you say, what's the greatest good for the greatest number of people? They are trying to serve the whole country. They're trying to serve millions of readers. And sometimes that means they're kind of hard on the people that they work with. Like uh, the bookkeeper really didn't want to talk to Bernstein. And he, like in the book, it says he literally put her foot in the door uh, so she couldn't close it on him. And she's uncomfortable and she's scared to talk, but he just keeps prying stuff out of her. Um, when they show up at the door for Hugh Sloan and they, they talk to his wife. And this is an honest house. That's right. It's, a, it's an honest house. And, he, and they say, well, that's, that's part of the reason why we want to talk to your husband, because, you know, a lot of people want to tell the truth, but they felt like they couldn't. And then Woodward says, you know, it's really for his, his benefit. And she says, no, it's not. No, it isn't. And he says, you're right. It isn't. Because this is, we're being utilitarian here. This is not going to be fun for your husband, and it's not going to make. It's probably going to make his life even worse, but it's for the greater good. So, anyway, utilitarian ethics. We talk about that a lot. Um, how how have things changed? Yeah, we always like to talk on the show about you know the what what have we learned from this, and part of what we always learn is history, and. One of the most obvious things is that um, people have had a little more trust for mainstream media back then, although a lot of people kind of go overboard and they say, well, yeah, like Walter Cronkite on the CBS Evening News, he was the most trusted man in America. And that's true. And people, generally speaking, did have more faith in mainstream news media, but it's not like 
there was ever a time when everybody believed. And they make it painfully clear in this movie that a lot of people didn't believe their reporting. A lot of people didn't believe about any of these connections between the White House and Watergate. Uh, Bradley says at the end, you know, the latest Gallup poll came up and half the country never even heard of Watergate, even though they've been writing about it for months and it's been all over the front pages. Um, you know, Walter Cronkite talked about the Kennedy assassination and the Warren Commission, and there's still millions of people that believe all kinds of conspiracy theories about that. They covered the lunar landing. Millions of people believed that we never landed on the moon. So there was never a time where everybody believed everything that was in the newspapers. But back then, you couldn't just flip on your TV and have 24-hour cable news network that would reinforce those conspiracy theories. And you certainly couldn't just open up your phone and have Facebook show you whatever conspiracy theories some algorithm thought that you might be interested in hearing about. So that was very different at the time. So who was working on Nixon's campaign that started at the beginning of the end? Well, interesting that you should ask that question, because when we talk about things have, how things were different, Roger Ailes, who of course later founded Fox News, was working for Nixon's campaign. At least he was gone. He was off. Um, he was off the team by the team by the time all of these events occurred. But one of the things he learned from being a consultant to Nixon is that, gee, things probably would have gone a lot better for Nixon if we could have like one news network that did nothing but reinforce Republican viewpoints, and he actually started working on that already in the 1970s, but he didn't have much uh, success with that until he hooked up with Rupert Murdoch in 1996, and they founded Fox News. And again, talking about differences between then and today, you can hear lots of people saying that if uh, Watergate had happened today, uh, maybe there wouldn't have even been an impeachment. He'd probably still be in office. Um, oh, another thing that's different, too, is between what's happened in, in 2020 and what happened in 1972 is that people really did draw a line in the sand. Um, there's that line there where Hugh Sloan says, you know, all, you know I don't think um, the president knew about any of the stuff that was going on. Uh, and Hugh Sloan, who's, who's working for Creep, he sincerely believed that. He just thought these were people under the president who decided on their own to go out and do this illegal stuff. And for all of these people, including all the Republicans, and by the way, the Republicans fought tooth and nail against the impeachment of Richard Nixon up to the point where it became obvious that Nixon was in on the whole thing. In fact, I still remember uh, my parents were big Nixon fans. And uh, I still remember the night sitting around the supper table where all this is in the news and my father turns to my mother or all of us in the family really and says, you know, this stuff is terrible, but I don't believe that Richard Nixon knew anything about this stuff that was going on. He just hired some bad people and they did some stuff. And the difference between then and now is when people like my father found out they were wrong, he never said another good word about Nixon ever again. 
and we didn't, you know, uh, they preempted my mother's uh, soap operas for the Watergate hearings. Uh-oh. And so, yeah, I'm in grade school at the time, and so she's... You don't mess with a woman's soap operas. No, you don't. Or reality TV. She tuned in, and she never said a word, but she had a very serious look on her face when she was hearing all of this stuff. And uh, I still remember not only that night at the supper table, but I remember two years later when we're on vacation and Nixon announces his resignation and we listen on the transistor radio in our little camper up in the Rocky Mountains to Nixon giving his basically his farewell address and it was like a funeral um, and it, it wasn't so much that my parents were sad for Nixon it was like something inside them died like their ability to to trust all these people because that's the way their generation had grown up is that you you trusted politicians and um, if you're a baby boomer like me your first memory of politics may be Watergate and so you look at things much differently so some other stuff uh, you, you found um, some interesting things about how they put this movie together. Well, give us some of that. Well, like we mentioned earlier, that it was not going to work to shoot this at Washington Post. But they tried, right? You said they... They Yeah, but then it was... They can't run a newspaper and have us shoot a feature film here. So the cost... What is it? $450,000? Yeah, it was like half a million dollars, yeah. (laughs) But they won... They won an award for it. They won an Oscar for it, right? Mm-hmm. And the security guard in the beginning that breaks this whole... Th- he finds the door that's He finds that's the door that's got tape. Taped open. Yes. Yeah. Uh, Frank Wills. He actually... The actor in the movie is actually the security guard from the Watergate break-in, Frank Wills. Cool. And he did... I think he got fired... Or let go from his job the year that he... So, it's his first year on the job, and that was his only year on the job. Wow. And But he got cast for this role. Okay, and by now, uh, the other thing that most people know that we didn't know when we first watched this movie, for like 20 years, 25 years, we didn't know, um, Deep Throat we now know, was actually a guy named Mark Felt, who was the deputy director. He was the number two guy at the FBI. Um, And Woodward never disclosed his name, but uh, when Mark Felt, um, I can't remember if it was right before he died or right after after he died that his family revealed it, and then Woodward confirmed that this was who it was. But it, it makes sense because... Uh, in 1972, J. Edgar Hoover, you, have you heard of him? Yeah. Yeah. Everybody knows who J. Edgar Hoover I'm not sure everybody. Well, lots who of people. Who's J. Edgar Hoover? Well, he was the director of the FBI for decades, and he, like, I, owned... I heard he was a really nice man. Oh, he was not a nice man. No. He was really into spying on people. Um, but anyway, he was, he had been appointed for life and he died in 1972. And so 
right when all of this stuff is breaking, Nixon appoints a new director of the FBI, and he avoid, uh, appoints somebody who he knows that he can push around. And so the FBI is getting really frustrated because they're trying to investigate this, and they're finding all kinds of evidence that there's bad stuff going on in the White House, but yet the guy at the top of the FBI is taking orders from the White House and telling them not to pursue. So makes sense that Mark Felt would end up being deep throat because the only way they're going to get the truth out there is if they leak this stuff to the press. And the bookkeeper, when they, when Bernstein interviews the bookkeeper, mm-hmm. the they actually rented the oh. actual room that oh. the Bernstein interviewed That's the, the house. That's the house. They rented that to shoot that scene. Wow. Oh, and again, we should. What a fantastic scene that is! And, and like I said, you, you can't make this story work unless you pack all kinds of drama and tension into each of these scenes, and you have to have somebody like Dustin Hoffman. Which and, Robert Redford wanted Al Pacino first, and then he decided that I did not know that Dustin Hoffman was a better fit. Yeah. Well, and initially, Robert Redford wanted two unknown actors. And he, Robert Redford didn't want to act in it because he... didn't he, want it to be a, a, the only well-known actor. Yeah, I guess the budget got to be so big that there was so much money riding on it that they knew they needed a box office. So then he says, okay, well, I'll, I'll act in it. But and then, on the posters, they put his name first. But then in the oh, credits on, in the movie, they put Dustin, Dustin Hoffman, Hoffman first. first. Yeah. I guess that's what they normally do when they have two big stars. I don't know. I don't. Could be. But yeah, Robert Redford didn't want to act. And then finally it's like, okay, we got to insure the box office. And then it's like, well, I got to have somebody who's every bit as big of a name as me because it's got to be clear that these two reporters are equally involved in the story. So that's when they get Dustin Hoffman. And he wanted Goldman to be the screenwriter. And Goldman... What's his first name? William. William. Mm-hmm. He also did the screenplay for, or the, he was the screenwriter for Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. Oh, and he won an award for, I think it was an Oscar, for Best Adapted Screenplay for this. And I think this was took many tries. And I Woodward and Bernstein also were kind of wanting to write a screenplay. <laughs> With this movie? Oh, I bet. Well, they had the the book. and the Right, book, but the, I guess they weren't much for screenwriters. Well, and again, if you read the book, the, the one liberty that they took with this, the film version of the story, is they did collapse a bunch of things at the end that actually happened like days or even weeks apart, and they stacked them all up in quick succession because they needed to build momentum. If you're going to have a climax, you got to build up speed to get there. And Redford did a ton of research, so interviewing people at the newspapers and what was it? Woodward joked that. Oh, he was a better reporter than yes, I was. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, okay, so uh, uh, lots and lots of great people in this cast. Big, big talent. Um, but if you're younger, you might not know all of these names. But uh, do you tell them about some of the other people who were in this movie that have done other stuff. 
Uh, so Jane Alexander, the bookkeeper, she did lots of Broadway work, and she received most of, like she received lots of recognition there. So, but other film works that are notable: Kramer versus Kramer, with Dustin Hoffman again. Yes, mm-hmm. the Cider House Rules, Testament. And, and the, uh, the people, millennials should know this, The Ring. Yeah, she's in The Ring. I don't even remember her in that one. I don't I, I have seen I don't that, either. But, and then I didn't know this until I saw it on IMDb, but uh, Bill Clinton actually named her the chair of the National Endowment for the Arts, the first uh, chairperson ever. Oh, wow. Uh, of course, Jason Robards did lots and lots of stuff. He was in just... Scores of movies and television stuff. What a stuff. great voice. Yeah, fantastic voice. How much did he s- smoke a ton? I don't know or if he's. that natural? I don't know if he smoked a ton. He a probably. combination with Probably smoking. a combination. And, you know, honestly, Tom Hanks also plays Ben Bradley, of course, in The Post. Well, the, did you see that the owner, what's her name, Kathy? Graham. Yes. So they were going to have a role for the owner but the, Kathy Graham didn't want to be in the movie, and then she later regretted it. But they were going to cast Lauren Bacall. Oh, really? Oh, that her. would have been fantastic. Yeah. yeah. And, of course, later on, Meryl Streep plays her in The Post. And, yeah, honestly, as good as Tom Hanks is, I don't know that you could say he was any better than Jason Robards. I'm going to have to uh-huh. say this is one time that Tom Hanks loses. Yeah, I I would probably go along with that. Because yeah. Robard, he did command authority. Oh, yeah. You, you're kind of like, want to sit in your chair with your legs crossed and yeah. posture straight. When he screams Woodstein the first time, which was the nickname, he combined the two names in real life. Ben Bradley did that. Uh, across that newsroom, you could just tell that everybody was like, holy crap, who's in trouble now? Yeah. Um, but anyway, Jason Robards, if you're younger, you might have seen him in Philadelphia, again, with Tom Hanks in that film. Um, oh, he also, didn't he do a, a little TV movie called the, the House Without a Christmas Tree? Yes. So a f- funny connection for me with this, actually, is this movie was based on one of my, well, my, one of my grandma's t- students based the teacher in the movie on my grandma. So her student wrote this book and then they made a movie out of it. Yeah. Yeah. And the teacher's based on my grandma. Yeah. Well, some other time we'll talk about all the movies that are based on my relatives, but we we really wouldn't have enough time for that today. (laughs) So that is actually pretty fun. Yeah. Uh, also in this movie, we got Jack Warden. And if you caught another connection where we had the way we were, so we had, Robert Redford here, yeah. and all the President's Men, and the way we were. Yeah, and if you caught our very first episode ever, it was Brian's song, and Jack Warden played uh, Coach Hallis in that movie. Um, and then he was in another, If again, if you're a millennial, maybe you saw another, it was a football movie, right? The Replacements? I think that's right. I think that's a football movie. I'm not sure I can we're gonna go. This we're going to go with yeah, that. Yeah. If you're the millennial, not, you're supposed we're to name We're going to throw out the... Journalism ethics, yeah. to where I can't confirm it, but I'll or, confirm it. Or if you've seen a 1990s rom-com with Sandra Bullock called While You Were Sleeping, Jack Warden is great in that movie, too. And, of course, he's also in Twelve Angry, the original Twelve Angry Men. He's on that jury, as was Martin Balsam, 
who's another of the editors in All the President's Men. And, of course, uh, Martin Balsam did lots and lots of stuff. But, of course, our favorite Martin Balsam movie would be Psycho, Psycho in 1960. Um, you're going to see Meredith Baxter Burney in this movie. She's Hugh Sloan's wife. But uh, she's best known among many, many roles for the, the sitcom with Michael J. Fox, uh, Family Ties. Um, Ned Beatty, another actor who did just a million things. Uh, and he was later in the movie uh, Network uh, from 1976, one of our, f another great news media movie. Maybe we'll talk about that sometime. And one of Dee's personal favorites. What, what's the other Ned Beatty movie you always think of? Deliverance. Yeah, Deliverance, the movie that Dee no, swears she will... No, I do not need to have the banjo in my head. Yeah, no, she's, that's a so classic, much. but... Thank you so much. Dee has vowed never to watch that one a second time. That's how good it is. <laughs> yeah, we'll um, go with that. And then uh, Stephen Collins. Millennials definitely should know him as the father from Seventh Heaven. Yeah, yeah, always the clean-cut guy. Yeah. Um, and then finally, um, the voice of John, again, we never see John Mitchell, and he's just got this one little bit where uh, Bernstein calls him up because he's got to get a, a reaction from him before they print this story that says he's a crook. Um John Randolph is the voice of, of John Mitchell in this. And again, maybe some millennials have seen some uh, older movies like you, You've Got Mail with Tom Hanks and, and Meg Ryan. He's in that. And he's also in the Christmas Vacation movie with Chevy Chase. So, But it, uh, it's a huge cast. Again, there are so many people in this film and lots of talent. And like we said about Robert Redford uh, in The Way We Were... Robert Redford loves working with talented people. Uh, he doesn't care about being overshadowed. And, uh, and again, in this movie, he's fantastic. Uh, the scene I still him. can't believe. I saw in a, like a lesser, Dustin Hoffman was nominated in a different, not for the Oscars or for the Academy Awards. It was in a smaller area, but otherwise, neither... Redford or Dustin Hoffman were nominated for Best Actor. Yeah, that's God, that's hard but to Robert believe. But Rogar did win for Best Supporting. Yeah. Actor. And yeah, sure, he deserved that. But no, these scenes with they are so believable as the reporters, Robert Redford with his notepad scribbling out all those notes, those phone calls. Well, and just the uh, yeah, the drawing, <laughs> the doodles while he's listening to the yeah phone and call. The, well, and the with the six minute where he's uncut and he says the wrong name and you learn that he actually did, that wasn't in the script. Yeah, he flubbed the line, but it was just so just believable. Went with it. I would have been, yeah. as you heard when I messed up in the synopsis, where I was like, oh, I, I wasn't capable of just going with it. Well, someday you'll get there. Yeah. You know, he's a pro, though. I'll be watching. He's a pro. Yeah, I got to take notes. Yeah. But one of my, I actually like the sound in this movie. And it went for... I believe. Uh, it, How oh, would you the, say with the best sound? What was the category? Oh, uh, the sound design. Yeah, I mean, the, when they're flipping the cards in the Library of Congress and, those, and the phone, those rotary dial phones yes, and, the and the voices on the phones. Yeah. Oh my gosh. 
No, I just loved the sound of the cards in the library. Yeah. Congress. I really did. And that, oh, and that shot in the library com, uh, of, of Congress, too. Yeah, you, they and, actually, well, you talk about how dark. They but actually that was went done to in the natural li- lighting. Yeah, at the actual Library of Congress. Yeah, and they could have pulled down the ceiling in the Library of Congress with their pull-away shot. Yeah, they had the, the camera that they like put, like I guess, in some little basket or whatever, I mean, and then they just keep approval for that? raising it higher and higher as they zoom out of this shot, and then you're like, I don't know how high that ceiling is. But again, it just shows you the enormity the complexity of this case that they're working on, how difficult it's well, going to be. Well, it ended up being they didn't get anything from spending hours flipping through those library yeah. cards. But they got you invested, didn't they? They did. Didn't but they? then, well, I think it was all for nothing. <laughs> yeah. But that's, that's part of the job. Yeah. And it's like the more you the more frustrated you get, the more determined you get that you've got to find out. And when people start lying to you, when you know that somebody is lying to you, God, that's when the adrenaline really kicks in. And it's like, I'm going to get this story no matter what. Somebody got to that woman. We're going to find out who it was. So we think you're going to love this movie, just like all the movies that we pick. Um, so watch it. You might need to watch it a couple of times just to figure out everything that's going on here. But it's... It's worth it. So, and you get to see Robert Redford. So, yeah, that's true. You get to see Robert Redford. All right. So, until next time, happy President's Day. Bye. Bye. <laughs>